Welcome to Calvary Chapel Fluvanna. Glad everyone could uh, make it out this morning and join us. Uh, if you have your Bible, Genesis 3. We'll finish up chapter 3 today. Let's get into the Word. Father, uh, just listening and thinking about the songs we were singing this morning. and um, Oh God, let us be a generation that seeks your face. I pray for that. I pray that is our, not just our song, but it's our prayer Uh, And that would become a reality in the individual lives of all of us here. That we would be not just a generation, but a people, an individual that seeks your face. And here we are this morning, Lord. We're sitting at your feet. We're asking you to, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to teach us from your word, Lord, that that somehow behind and beyond the words of this preacher uh, would be the voice of the living God. And that nothing that's said would be misunderstood as just coming from me, but actually, Lord, that these words would be understood as coming from you, that all Scripture is is inspired by you. Um, Lord, we celebrate what we know of you. We are excited to learn more. Uh, And Lord, give us the strength to respond uh, with what we hear, to what we hear you speaking to us. If you're speaking just to something deep in our hearts, Lord, I pray that that you'd give us the right response to these things, that we'd know um, and, and be transformed by your word. Father, help us to worship you with all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our soul, and all of our minds as we, um, as we sit here and get into your word together. It's in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 3. We've, been, we've come through Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and I've kind of titled those two chapters, It's All Good, The Creation of Everything. Uh, where did it all come from? It all came from God. In the beginning, God created. And so he created all these things. At the end of each day, it's good. Chapter 2 gave us the highlight of uh, the creation of man and, and woman. Day 6, uh, it wasn't good. The only thing that wasn't good was that man would be alone. So we read through and studied as, as how God uh, built a wife and brought her to Adam and the two um, would become one flesh, naked, unashamed, all in the garden, everything great. They don't live happily ever after because we see the serpent surface uh, in chapter 3. Um, Adam and Eve, that they begin to, or Eve is challenged to um, hold fast to God's word. Uh, the serpent causes her to, to challenge the validity of God's word, uh, the accuracy of God's word, no different than we, we struggle with today. And so, we read down through chapter 3, um, the fall, where they actually eat the fruit they were not supposed to eat. They defied the commandment of God, and Eve uh, gives to Adam. He eats. They, their eyes are open. They see their nakedness, and they sew fig leaves together and make for themselves covering. And we work our way down. I, I'm giving a lengthy, a semi-lengthy introduction because it's kind of cool, and, and I would, wouldn't trade it for the world, but... Every week there are, are new people coming to Calvary Chapel Fluvanna. So I know some of you haven't been here for the first few um, sermons on Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2 and 3. So I try to give a quick overview to get us all up to speed. Chapter 3 is oftentimes called the fall of man. And, and that's not speaking of the season fall. Uh, it's speaking of the fact that uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed the one commandment of God fell into sin, and that had a huge, huge impact on everything that we see and experience today. We can't even imagine a world without sin. We can, to us, it's so far, and we can't even picture everything we see now. Seems, this seems normal. 
But what we're supposed to realize is that what we experience now is not the norm. The norm was Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's all good. And so it's meant to drive us to say, what's wrong with our world? As a matter of fact, um, G.K. Chesterton, a Christian philosopher and writer, uh, and he was uh, from England and he was responding to an essay uh, contest that newspaper was running. And in the essay contest, the question that they were supposed to answer with this essay was, what's wrong with the world? Now, I don't know how you would answer that. You know, you, some might say, well, it's the government's, well, it's greed. Well, what, you know, you might answer that, what's wrong with the world in a certain specific way. His answer was so creative and so right on and so brief. You know what his answer was? The, an- the answer to your essay, sir, on what is wrong with the world is, I am. I am. And so the recognition that sin, not just affecting Adam and Eve, but then trickling down and affecting all of us as all of us have sinned. All of us have, in one way or another, disobeyed God. Everybody. There is no one that has followed God perfectly, obediently. And that's the problem with the world. Is, there, is God good when it doesn't seem that God is good? Yes, God is good. It's people that stink. Because we disobey God. Imagine if the whole world lived by the simple golden rule. What if everybody did unto others as they would have others do unto themselves. Would that not instantly change our world? And then add on top of that, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, wouldn't that instantly make our world a better place? But God gives, God gives us free will. He allows us to disobey him. And, and he allows us to experience the fatal consequences of that, but not without having a plan. So we'll talk about the plan as we get to the end of chapter 3. So a lengthy introduction. We started looking uh, at the curses last week, but before we get back into the curses, um, the results, the consequences of, of having disobeyed God, I have to take this opportunity to tell you a joke. Now, I never, you've been around here, you know, I'm not really a big joke teller, and when I do tell a joke, they're usually really bad. Uh, so bear with me on this. Uh, there was a, a pastor, pastor at a small church, and uh, a fella had come to visit the church for the first time, and, and they met each other. And during the week, the, the pastor was out doing his visitation rounds uh, to the people in the church, and he decided to go pay this new fella at the church a visit. Had his address, stops by his house uh, in the evening, and um, knocks on the door, sees the lights on, the car's in the driveway, knock, 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 no answer. Goes around to the back door, knocks again, no answer, can't figure it out. So he sticks a, a note card with his, you know, his name and his, his business card, sticks it on the door, uh, and, and he leaves. And on the note card, he just wrote, uh, I came to visit you, you know, signed his name, and then he put Revelation 3.20. and just wrote the verse marker. So, of course, Revelation 3.20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. So that's Revelation 3.20. So the next week, uh, they church, you know, Sunday they have church, and the uh, people come, people go, and the pastor is then, you know, uh, counting the offering, and in the offering, uh, with the offering, he finds a card. And on the card, it's his, it's his card, the pastor's card, given back to him, and on the back of it, underneath Revelation 3.20, uh, is the verse, Genesis 3.10. This was the man's response. In Genesis 3.10, the pastor looks it up, says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
So I couldn't, I can't pass that up. It's just too good. I can't pass it up. We're right there in Genesis. So that contributes nothing to my sermon. Uh, but boy, is it funny. <laughs> so I thought I'd share that with you. Genesis uh, 3, uh, we see the results. Of, not only do we see them disobeying God, and all of this, you know, we apply to ourselves as well. Um, we see some of the results is this, uh, the awakening of a consciousness to their own nakedness, to their own um, openness. And there's a desire, this instant desire to cover up this, uh, this shameful feeling that they experience for the first time ever. And we talked about that last week. And I think that is inherent in every human being. Every human being is inherently aware, keenly aware, of, of a deep internal feeling of shame and inadequacy. And that usually drives them to cover it themselves. And people cover that feeling. I think one of the prime ways people cover up that knowledge is by somehow trying to convince themselves that they are actually good people. And I think that's prevalent. You go evangelizing in the downtown mall. You talk to people, and they say, well, I'm a pretty good person. And then you begin to ask questions. You begin to dig a little deeper, and you find out that that idea that I'm a good person is really a facade. And deep down inside, although we've got it repressed, although we've got it oppressed, we all know we, 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 have, we struggle with our thought lives. We struggle with doing the right thing. We, are, we get mean and ornery and angry. We are hurtful, and we've hurt other people in our lives, and we know it. But we don't know what to do with it. Most people don't know how. What do you do with that? Well, I've got to cover it somehow because I can't deal with it, so I cover it. I'll cover it with alcohol. I'll cover it with drugs. I'll cover it with religion. I'll cover it with identity. You know, trying to present myself as such a good and nice and great person. I'll cover it by succeeding at work. I'll cover it by whatever. And the only answer, the answer and the only answer to covering that continues to be found here in Genesis. And we'll get to that at the end. You know it's Jesus Christ. There is no other answer than forgiveness. What you need is not covering uh, of your own. What you need is forgiveness from God. So we'll talk more about that as we get through. Um, they hid themselves. So they, they were afraid for the first time. They hid themselves from God. All of these results of sin. They began to blame each other. The blame game started and still continues, does it not? The blame game continues today. Uh, we're all so good at saying what's, that's what I like about that G.K. Chesterton quote. Uh, what's the problem with the world? It's not Obama. It's not the government. It's not this or that. It's me. If I could just live my life according to the word of God, wouldn't it be a better place? If I could just do what was right on a regular basis, on a daily basis, but I can't do it. Therefore, I can't ever expect you to do it. We need God. We need forgiveness, and we need forgiveness toward each other, and we need forgiveness from God because all have sinned and fallen short. Uh, the curse is pronounced on the serpent. Uh, we looked at the first prophetic message in the Bible to predict that God, this is no surprise to God. You know, do you think God was surprised by what Adam and Eve did? Do you think that caught him off guard? Like God makes this and uh, it makes the tree of knowledge and good and evil, tree of life, and he says, don't eat this one. You can eat all these other trees. Just leave this one alone. And then they ate the one they weren't supposed to. And do you think God said, oh, no, now what? Now I'm in trouble. This really knocked me for a loop. I wasn't expecting that. Remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain 
before the foundation of the world. Not only did God know what was coming, he already had a resolution for it. So this doesn't catch him off guard. And we get a sense of that resolution right there in verse 15 when God is speaking to the serpent. Satan, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or your offspring and her seed, singular, not just her offspring in general. There will be a lineage of men born from this woman throughout history. One of them, again, looking back in time, the serpent now knowing that one of them in the singular masculine pronoun he, not they, he, that one seed, that particular seed will bruise your head, speaking to the serpent. And now the serpent knows that he's not going to get away with it forever. There will come one in the process of time that will be the ultimate one who crushes you. You might bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And now Satan knows. And I heard the example preached by somebody else, so this is not original, but I thought, wow, that really gives a good picture of the, the battle that has set up across the, the pages of history and across the pages of biblical history as we look at Herod trying to put all the babies to death uh, that were born as, at the time that Christ was born. And we look at the Pharaoh trying to put all the Hebrew children to death. There is this desire of Satan knowing his head will be crushed by some, uh, some offspring of, of the woman, of the first woman Eve. He has been proactive trying to strike first. If I told you that after church today that I got something out for you and I, I'm going to get you, I'm going to crush your head, what would you do? You, know, would you, you, you could go and hide somewhere or you could wait for me in the prayer room back there or wait for me in my office and strike first. You could try to take a proactive strike because you know I'm coming for you. You could try to strike first and make sure you got to me before I could get to you. Well, that's what Satan has been doing throughout history because he knew he was conquered. He knew he was, prophecy said he was going to die. He was going to be crushed. So this has been throughout history. As you read your Bible now, look for those things. We'll see it in chapter 4, Cain and Abel. The, the, the two children of the first woman, one being a child of faith, killed by the one who was uh, the offspring of the serpent, Cain. So we'll get to that next week. Um, so we read about that. We read about uh, the curse uh, on the woman uh, still bringing forth children just as she was called to. That's not the curse, but pain and sorrow and this now conflict between husband and wife, each trying to dominate the other, whereas they were supposed to work and operate as one in love. But now one is trying to, to, have, you know, to exercise control of the other, then the other exercises control back, and it becomes a power struggle. And hence, uh, to this day, there are thousands of books on marriage counseling because of this verse here. Verse 17 is where we left off. And now we, uh, we get to the curse, the result on Adam himself. So, long introduction. Let's get rolling. Verse 17 says, Then to Adam, he, God, said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. 
In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So that's the curse that's pronounced uh, on Adam. Again, the consequences of his sin. Uh, Work is not the consequence, but hard work, toiling work. Uh, Work is very satisfying. uh, Can you imagine what it was like in the garden before the curse? I mean, stuff just grew, and it grew plentiful, and easy to gather, and easy to eat. And man, Adam had some work to do to till and prepare the ground and all that, but it was, it was joyful work. It was, it was fulfilling work. But the result of the curse, well, let's just go back to verse 17. So God speaks to Adam, and he says, the first thing I notice right there is he says, because you have heeded. The first thing he, he did wrong. And he doesn't let Adam shift blame, does he? Adam said, what, what was Adam's, uh, what did he say to God? He said, it was the woman. It was you, God. It was your fault. You gave me the woman, and then she, we were doing great until you gave me that woman as her fault. And, uh, but does God buy that? All your excuses you said, you know, if, if you get good at making excuses, that's all you'll ever be good at. If you get good at making excuses, that's all you'll ever be good at. It's always someone else's fault. It's, it's my parents, they didn't love me. It's my the pastor of the church, he didn't visit me. It's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. We're so good at blaming others. But God does, is, is, is not cool with that. He says to Adam, because you. Because at the end of the day, who are you responsible for? You. At the end of the day, who can you control? You. You're the only person over which you can exercise control. And I pray that that. You're being controlled by the Spirit of God. That's who controls us, hopefully. Uh, But he says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Now, wait a second. Stop right there. There are some guys now that want to, they're they're underlining, right? Oh, wait a second. I'm underlining that. Because you heeded the voice of your wife. See, honey, I told you I shouldn't listen to you. You start a whole doctrine, a whole church. First church of let's not listen to our wives. See, you can t- you know, some people have said if you choke the Bible hard enough, you can make it say anything you want. So if you're, this is improper biblical interpretation to grab that verse, yank it out of context, and build a doctrine that says, see, I'm not supposed to, you, men are not supposed to listen to the voice of their wives. Now, if you go through the whole counsel of God's word, you read in Genesis chapter uh, 21 uh, that a- Abraham and Sarah have a discussion uh, about Isaac and Ishmael, Sarah makes, makes a suggestion to Abraham that they send out Hagar and, and her son Ishmael, send them packing, and that makes Abraham a bit upset. Well, God chimes in and says, don't let this be uh, displeasing in your sight. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. So see, there's a situation where God says to Abraham, listen to your wife. It doesn't have to do with specifically wife or no wife or friend or no friend or what the the issue is god said don't eat of that tree that that tree i commanded you not to eat of and the voice of his wife the problem wasn't that it was coming from his wife the problem was that it was opposed to the word of god that's the problem so be it your friend be it a, a a classmate be it a relative be it your pastor Your responsibility is to know what God's Word says. And it blows me away how many people on a daily basis who sit in church, 
who show up to Bible study, who have a Bible, uh, that then it comes time to make decision. And the first place you go is to all, you're checking your, your astrological chart. Well, I'm a Gemini, so therefore I should make this decision when the sun rises, I should do this. And, you know, we go to all crazy things to make decisions. And we'll hunt around to find someone that will affirm the thing we want to do, even though it's against what God's Word says. So Christians, please, with each other, let your voice match what the Word of God says. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's not what the person wants to hear. But ultimately, you could say, well, my friend gave me bad advice. It's not their fault. Psalm chapter 1 says, blessed is the man who does what? Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, sometimes counsel of the ungodly from, comes from people that seem to be godly. And sometimes it's just a mistake. You know, our flesh gets in the way. Our desires get in the way. We're confused about it. You know, being a counselor is a hard thing to do, offering people advice because, you know, they're going to listen to being Sitting here, being a pastor is really challenging. I got to know what God's Word says. And there's so many times I feel for you. I hear what you're saying. That's really hard. I mean, I don't know if I could go through what you're going through with your spouse or with your kids. But I can't, I can't set you free if God's Word says, husbands, don't divorce your wives. If God's Word says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. If God's Word says, love your enemy. If your enemy is hungry, clothe him, give him something to eat. I can't tell, tell you any different than that. That's what God's Word says. But ultimately, it's up to you to know what God's Word says, and to be responsible yourself. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm hitting this home because it's amazing how few people actually know or take the time to find out what God's Word says about their situation. And, and Adam's issue wasn't that he listened to his wife, but that his wife gave him bad advice. Now, evidently, they had a conversation because in, in the earlier of the chapter, all we see is the two of them at the tree Adam doesn't seem to be saying anything. He just seems to be silently there. Eve eats the fruit, and then just says, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate, as if there were no words exchanged. But evidently, there were words exchanged, and she encouraged him uh, to eat the same fruit that she ate. Uh, she encouraged him to sin. Now, let me tell you, husbands, wives, in your marriages, in society, God's word first. God's word first. So, I don't know what the government is saying, but if they're encouraging me to sin, I have to be civilly disobedient. If my wife or my husband or whatever is encouraging me to sin or my friend, then first I'm, I have to be accountable to the Word of God because God's not going to say, well, I know your friends you know, just didn't know. I know you were just you know, doing what you said they should do or what they said you should do, but again, you're responsible. You're responsible. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat. That was the problem. That's why then uh, the curse comes. How many commands did Adam have to follow? How many? One. You know, sometimes we think God is, is the reason we're in such a bad state is because God is such a, a mean ruler and it's all these rules we've got to follow. And No wonder no one can please God because he's all these rules we've got to follow. Look, it just takes one. We can become a sinner with one rule. That's all it takes. One commandment because we are, because of Adam's sin 
Uh, we, we, we would have done the same thing if we were there, right? Whatever the commandment was, because there is this innate nature in us, this sinful nature that, that uh, desires to disobey God. The flesh desires to disobey God. So it just takes one commandment. That's all Adam had. He blew it. Uh, many say this is where Adam bombed out. It was a real Adam bomb, and he sure did bomb out on this. So cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Adam's in for a hard life. And isn't that what the Bible says about sin? I mean, one of the verses that I stick close to my heart, and I've I've shared this with people a lot, is Proverbs 13, 15. You can write this down. It says, the way of the transgressor is hard. Simple. Uh, That's the King James Version. The New King James says, uh, the way of the unfaithful is hard. So you see your friends, you see your family members, you see someone you're close to, someone you work with, and man, they're just living a hard life. It's like, I like to, you know, some of you know I like to ride my bike. I got a road bike, and I get out there on my bicycle, and I pedal, 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 and it's wonderful when the wind is at your back. I mean, you are just flying down the road, and the wind is, is in your back. It's like wind in your sails, and, and you're going fast and feeling great. But then you turn around to come home, and now you're coming into the wind. And I always feel like this is what it's like to try to, to try to live against God. It's like fighting the wind, you know? No matter how hard you push, it just seems like nothing goes right. I can't make any progress. And that's what this verse is saying. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard to fight against God. This is what the Apostle Paul found out, right? How long are you going to kick against the goads? How long are you going to fight against me, Paul? And Paul laid it down right there. I'm tired of fighting again. You're not fighting against your neighbor. You're not fighting against your parents. You're not fighting against your, your, your boss. Maybe you're fighting against God. And that's a hard fight. And that makes for a hard and discouraging life. So I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody here that right now, you, you know, you're kind of here because someone dragged you here because, you know, someone said, you got to, you know, come to this church. And, uh, but you're hearing what God's word is saying to you. And if you're saying, man, my life is so hard, well, maybe it's because you're living apart from God. I don't know. But certainly, that's Adam's, the result of sin in Adam's life was that now his work, uh, the ground tilling, toiling all the days of his life, both verse 18 says, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So there'll still be food produced, but it's going to take a lot more work. I have found... Uh, you know, my wife and I have a little farm, and we've got a garden, which I'm te- I do not have a green thumb. I'm a terrible gardener. Uh, if it weren't for weeds, we wouldn't have anything growing in the garden. So I'm thankful for the weeds in one way. But we also have fruit trees, and we like to do things natural. Like, I don't like pesticides and herbicides. And, and, and by the way, um, from the research I've done, the number one preoccupation of every farmer in the industrialized world is weeds. The, uh, you, uh, a, a farmer, anybody who farms, will tell you whatever their crop they're growing, whatever they're making, the number one thing they have to fight on a daily basis, they spend billions of dollars fighting, is weeds. Goes right back here. They work hard. And then, so what, what does mankind do? God sends a curse. The ground is cursed. You're going to toil. Well, we don't like to toil. So we're going to find the easy way. So we're going to uh, genetically modify stuff to make herbicides and pesticides and all these things and then you know what that produced super weeds the weeds have now modified themselves and and now 
once we think we're, see that the way of the transgressor is hard. You know, the way of the transgressor is hard. We think we're going to one-up God. We're going to get around the curse somehow. Our technology or our intelligence or our science. And we find out, what do we do? We just make it harder for ourselves. Now we've got this breed of super weeds that nobody knows what to do with. And so it just makes it harder. I know this to be true at our house. Again, not liking to use herbicides, pesticides. We got apple trees and Asian pear trees and cherry trees and peach trees. And barely ever do we get any fruit off of those things because they have blight and they have disease and they have bugs and, and this bug eats them up and that bug eats them up. And, and it's like I remember coming in one day and, going, and realizing the connection that everything in the world is against me ever eating a piece of fruit. I just want to enjoy the fruit from the tree. I, pl- I dug the hole. I planted the thing. We put fertilizer around it. We used lovely natural horse manure fertilizer. I mean, we prune the thing. Uh, and, just, and then, as soon, man, as soon as it gets nice out, everything looks good right at first. But then all of a sudden, you see the, the signs of disease. And you see, the, then the bugs come, eat all the leaves. And then it's dry all summer. And, there's, and it's like that in life, isn't it? Because of sin and, and because of Satan... And because of the flesh, everything in this world is against you bearing any fruit to God. Everything is fighting against you. You're fighting an uphill battle. You say, it's so, it's so hard to bear fruit in the world. Yes, it is. It takes work. You want to bear fruit spiritually? It's going to take work. You're going to have to continue to fertilize. You're going to have to continue to get into God's Word. You're going to have to continue to spend time in worship. You're going to have to continue to build relationships. And it's going to be work. Don't think that you're just going to sit back and live a fruitful, spiritual Christian life. Because of sin, it takes work. Both thorns and thistles, uh, it, will, it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat uh, the herb of the field. Uh, one more note before we go on. Think about this, if you will. Jesus uh, bearing our sin on the cross, being mocked by the soldiers as he's being scourged. Uh, after he's scourged, before he's crucified, they dress him up like a king, right? They put the robe on him. His back is is bloody, having been flayed open um, uh, by the flagellum, the Roman whip. Uh, they put the, the purple robe on him. And what do they put on his head? Crown of thorns. Crown of thorns. Where do thorns come from? Sin. So even on his head as they mash that crown of thorns down and it pierces into his, his uh, forehead and his head, uh, still a reminder of that, that sin hurts. Sin does damage in relationships Sin does damage to people. Every time Adam goes out to, to pick some of the fruit that he's, or some of the vegetables that he's planted, he's got thorns and, and he, ouch, ah, that hurts. He gets pricked and he bleeds there. And, and uh, so again, I think there's a lot of connections here that you can continue to think about. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. So ultimately, not just toil and hard work, but we see death, physical death, enter the picture. And it's true. Um, one, one small note about this, a lot of people wonder, as a Christian, is it right to be buried or can I be cremated? Uh, the idea here is that you will return to dust. The cremation just speeds up the process. So I don't see anything biblically why a person can't be uh, cremated uh, versus buried. I think either one is fine. The point is that part of the curse is that this body is corruptible. This body is not heavenly. This body is not meant to to go to the presence of the Lord. This body goes into the ground 
and becomes once again dust. Now, we do everything we can to avoid that, don't we? We dress them up and make them look pretty, put makeup on them, you know, make everything look... look be, and again, what are we trying to do? We're trying to hide from the effects of sin. Corruption in the world, decaying in the world, is a direct result of sin and the curse on sin. But again, has God left us there? No, he promises those that believe a new body, an eternal body that is everlasting, that is meant to be, built to be in his presence forever. So I just, you know, I always tell people, you know, I, I did, when, when I die, don't believe him. When they say Steve died, don't believe him. I just changed my address. I moved out of my tent into my permanent house. That's what you can say about me. Verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Those of you that are science buffs, I'm not going to spell it for you, but you can try to figure it out yourself. If you want to do a Google search on mitochondrial Eve, uh, E-V-E, mitochondrial Eve, uh, scientists who study genetics have done the research, crunched the numbers, compared the genes of people all over the world, and guess what they've concluded? That every living, living human being comes from one original source, one mother of us all. Uh, and we said, tell us something we don't already know, right? How, how much money did you spend doing that research? I'll read it right here. She, Eve, is the mother of all living. So every living person, listen, this gets rid of racism. This gets rid of all. We are all of one blood. I don't care what color your skin is now or where you were born or where you're from. We are all from one source. We're all in this together, folks. And this is a, this is a verse of great faith, isn't it? Because are there any kids born yet? Adam doesn't rename his wife Eve, which means life, and say because she was the mother of all that are dying. She's the mother of all living, and there were no kids born yet. That's a verse, that's a statement of faith, isn't it? Will we see Adam in heaven? I think so. He fell, he stumbled, he blew it. But here, I think he expresses great faith because he knew what God had said about the offspring of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And he said, man, I'm all about that. I hear you, God. So she, we don't have any kids yet, but we believe. So I'm, I believe you so much that I'm going to name my wife life and not death. I like that. Verse 21, another spectacular verse. Uh, as for, uh, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, wait a second. They were already clothed, weren't they? Didn't they clothe themselves? What did they made? What did, what did they made? Anybody, any English teachers in here that can help me out? Uh, what, had, what did they make? Let's say it that way. They had uh, fig leaves that they had sewn together and made themselves a covering. Now, what happens when a leaf, to a leaf when it falls off a tree? It begins to dry up, shrivel up. Doesn't look so good after a while. It's not meant to be a long-term covering. It's not meant to actually be useful for them. God knew that. So God says, look, those fig leaves, the way you're covering yourself, that'll never do. That'll never do. So here in the garden, we have this amazing principle that I think Adam and Eve learned because we see it continuing to Genesis chapter 4. And what's that principle? Uh, substitutionary sacrifice. Adam and Eve, they got to take off their covering, their fig leaves, their attempt to hide their own shame with their works or 
their identity or their you know, clothing from the most expensive store at the mall, whatever it is. And God says, I need two animals, one for you, Adam, one for Eve, and I'm going to slay them right here, kill them right here, and their skin will become your covering. First time there's been uh, a killing in the Bible, first time there's been a death um, in the Bible, and it's for a substitute for Adam and Eve for their sin. And of course, this is all just meant to be a picture of, of the Lamb that has come to take away the sin of the world. It's His covering that I need. It's not my own covering. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, and you're still trying to hide that, that shame in your life, and you're still trying to... to you know, the only covering that will work is the Lamb that's been substituted for you. And to be clothed in His righteousness is the only covering that's acceptable before God, the only covering that will work. And we see that exemplified here. And even in chapter 4, they're bringing offerings to the Lord. So God, this is grace, isn't it? By God's grace, he says, I feel, I I pity you guys because you're wearing those silly fig leaves. Do you know how silly you guys look in fig leaves? I need to make make you something that's more appropriate. And so God in his grace, still ministering to them. And the Lord God said, behold, verse 22, the man has become like one of us. Another mention of the Trinity Uh, let us make man in our image. And now he says, the man has become like us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So again, in the midst of all this, in the midst of of judgment, in the midst of curses, you see the the grace and the mercy of God. We imagine to eat of the tree of life was to live forever. They would keep eating the tree of life, the tree that gave life, and they would continue to live. The problem was now their bodies were going to dust. So you want to talk about Zombieville. I mean, living in the land of the, the walking dead, that would have been what it would have been like. They would have continued to have corruptible bodies, but eat of the tree of life and live forever, and that would have been no good. They would have lived forever, stuck in their sinful bodies. And so at, in his mercy... God banishes them from the garden, but not without a plan. Hang on with me for a second. Because we know there's a different tree that brings life. The tree that was at Calvary, the cross, is that tree that brings life. We'll talk about that in a second. So he drove them out, verse 24. uh, He drove out the man. He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So um, uh, now they're expelled from the garden. We don't know all this stuff was destroyed. The geography was destroyed by the flood. So where's that tree now? Where's the flaming sword, the cherubim? Wouldn't that have been cool to see? I mean, that must have been amazing, a flaming sword and a cherubim, uh, this angelic being. Uh, But all that uh, geography destroyed by the flood. So before we close out uh, the Bible study, I want to read to you something from 2 Samuel. It's about David, and it it bears on this Genesis passage. Uh, King David had a son named uh, Absalom. And Absalom was a beautiful young man, uh, very well known for his good looks. He had taken some uh, matters of justice into his own hands. He had killed another son of David uh, and and had broken David's heart uh, because David loved Absalom. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 13, at the end of chapter 13, Absalom had killed his brother and then 
uh, he fled. Absalom fled and, and went to another country, another area. And David, it says, mourned for his son every day. David missed his son. He loved his son. And King David longed to go to Absalom. So this is, the, uh, this is what's in David's heart. He wants to see Absalom. He's longing to go to him. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't go to him. He wouldn't bring him home. He wouldn't go and send for him to come home. Um, so Joab, his, David's general, hatches a plan to help convince David to reconcile with his son who had been banished. Okay, follow the picture. The king devises a plan, well, the general devises a plan to convince the king to develop a plan to bring his son back. So here's what he says. The woman presents this, uh, this sort of a story to him. David basically affirms that, that the woman should make a way to reconcile with her son that had been banished. But that's a setup for David because then she says to him, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. So David had heard this story the woman told and said, wow, you really need to bring your son home. And, and then she says to him, well, David, you have a son that you need to bring home. And, and he hears that. And this is what she says because the words are so profound. She says, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. And that's kind of a, a little parable of life, isn't it? Life is like water spilled out. Once it's been lived, you can't relive it again. Once water is spilled out, you can't gather it back up and put it back in the jar, put it back in the glass. So life, she says, is like water spilled out. People are going to, we're going to die. We'll surely die. And when we die, we become like water spilled out. It's, it's, it's empty. It's emptied. And yet, she says, God does not take away a life. But listen, he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. So even though God sent them out of the garden, even though he sent them packing for their own good, because God disciplines those he loves, he did not do it without a way, making a way for those that have been banished to not be expelled from him, to, to a way to bring them back into his presence. And what is that way? It's a different tree of life that he offers to them, that he offers to me, that he offers to you. It's the tree at Calvary right behind me up there. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the means, a foolish means to the world, but that is the means of forgiveness and reconciliation for all mankind for all time. And, and I'm going to invite Phil and the praise team to come back up. They're going to lead us uh, in a final song. And um, so I don't know where you are this morning. I want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you feel like God is far from you, like how could God ever accept me? Uh, I've walked away from him in the past. I've been far from him in my present. Uh, I've been involved in sin. If he only knew the things I did, he would never want me. Let me tell you, God has devised a way. If you feel like you've been banished from him, if you feel like you can't come into his presence because you're not worthy, you're right, you're not worthy. But God has made a way to forgive all of your unworthiness. And the Bible says we are accepted in the beloved. In Christ, you are accepted back into the presence of God. No questions asked. 
He doesn't want a long explanation for why you did what you did. Think about the prodigal son. Did the father ever ask him, now, you know, we're going to have to have words about this. Took him, robed him, put shoes on his feet, wringing his finger, not a word about it. You can come today and be completely forgiven. Why? Because Jesus Christ bore all of your sins on the cross. And Jesus Christ is God's way for you to come home. For you to come home to the king himself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's, let's stand. Lord, in a sea of faces here, um, I know maybe there's one or two or three or 12 that have felt very distant from you, Lord. We know that it's not you that has been distant from them, but they have distanced themselves from you. Maybe ashamed, maybe hiding. And that they hear your offer to clothe them with your righteousness. That their sacrifice was made on their behalf. To bring them back into your presence, Lord. To restore them to fellowship with you. Only a fool would reject that offer, Lord. So I pray there are no fools here in this room. Behold, God says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Lord, you give a great offer. So as I pray for everybody here, Lord, you know the hearts. Convince, convict to move on, on, on that information and receive life from Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. All God's people said.